I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. And I take refuge in the Sangha. So thanks for being wherever you are. The last week or so, Soten has been leading us in beautiful meditations on posture and breathing. And I'd like to start with that, if only for my own benefit. I was thinking I wish I had remembered these practices when I was writing the talk this morning. So it was only a few minutes ago that I was thinking, oh, maybe a deep breath would be <laughs> a helpful thing to do before getting up here and giving a talk. So at least at the monastery, we often have the Sunday morning posture. Sunday morning is the last scheduled event of the week until we have a couple of days off. Not this week, tomorrow we're starting session. So noticing your Sunday morning posture. And seeing if you can find more space to bring in the breath. I think of it as an action of stacking the bones, stacking the vertebrae. So basically the body can be at rest once the bones are stacked. Then we leave it as it is. So an upright, alert posture that is also relaxed. Breathing in through the nose, we allow the breath to enter the body without tensing the sinuses in the face. So the back of the throat is open and soft. And keeping the energy at the hara or tanden. So our sometimes fiery energy of the heart is drawn down into our center. And we can do this using the breath to guide the energy into the tanden. Allowing the inhale to Bring alertness into the body to sit upright. And the exhale, creating space, letting the body dissolve into the space around you, feeling the space grow between the rib cage, feeling the muscles and organs in the rib cage softening. Keith Dowman once described setting up the posture like cutting the string on a bundle of twigs. 
And I don't think this means collapsing. I think it means, for me, setting up the posture, aligning the spine, and then letting everything go, letting the body relax into the upright posture. Okay, that's a good start for me. Hopefully I'll remember to breathe as I keep talking. Here in Klatskanai, we're enjoying really lovely spring weather. The chippers and the mowers in our neighborhood are running enthusiastically throughout the last week of sunny days, ours included. And I've really been enjoying the changing phases of the moon because it's a rare sight in this part of Oregon to get to watch the moon night after night. Also watching um, Orion, which is in the western part of the sky right now, moving across the sky as we sit evening zazen. And in other news at the monastery, the swallows have returned. At first, we are only noticing them high above us. Um, but this morning I saw them checking out the nest above the office, which is exciting. Um, they left here last fall during the wildfire season and um, this area was completely socked in with smoke. So it's very nice to see that they're back and as lively as ever. All our bird regulars seem to have returned. The robins are noisily arguing outside the zendo windows in the evenings. The hummingbirds are back en masse. We have four feeders in front of the monastery right now that empty with gusto. The plum blossoms have mostly fallen to the ground, but the cherry trees are in their full glory. And our veggie garden is almost intimidatingly vibrant. Kosho this year is the gardener, and we're eating piles of lettuce and greens every day. A great joy for the veggie lovers in this community. Sometimes it seems like I'm actually living in a community of kale enthusiasts rather than a Zen training monastery. In forest news, the trillium flowers may have faded out or mostly faded out, but the flesh of dicentra, which covers the forest floor here, is taking its place. And yes, our 26 acres is also a playground for sprawling blackberry vine, um, but we also benefit from that. We're still eating the fruits of our harvest labors from last year, which we freeze in large freezer bags. Chosen's tulip boxes in front of the monastery are overflowing with color and a strangely mechanical perfection as each tulip is almost exactly the same height and just perfectly shaped. So with big bright skies above us full of sun and stars and the fiercely competitive plant and animal world alive and brilliant in its spring vigor all around us, we continue to practice here at the monastery, just as our ancestors have done. 
Whatever the season, we sit through the dark depths of winter, the energetic nervousness of spring, sweating into our robes and samoways in summer, and even into the mysterious, windswept whisperings of fall. Generation after generation, creating a lineage almost in spite of ourselves, simply through repetition and determination. Each generation, we set down our garden tools, our chopping blocks, our books, and our lovers. And these days, our cell phones, tablets, iPads, iPods, computers, our weather apps and Fitbits, Instagram and TikTok, in the name of practice, in the name of awakening, settling into practice. And settling into faith. The faith in the immeasurable capacity of consciousness, the immeasurable capacity for creativity within the sourceless source from which the changing seasons, our own proclivities, and the mystery of being anything at all arises. With faith, we have continued the thread of faith from generation to generation because we have to start with something. As Dan Brown, a professor, a professor, psychologist, and devoted spiritual practitioner in the Tibetan tradition puts it, the beginner must go beyond the habitual security of ordinary thinking in a leap of faith. He goes on to say, faith ripens out of admiration and respect. Essentially, to believe is to decide that the teachings are an appropriate object of faith, and to reach out in faith is also to reach beyond one's own limitations. I wanted to ask a question of the audience. Is that possible? So I'm curious, I'm using this word faith, and it's something that I've become comfortable with over the years, but I know that different people have different relationships with this word, possibly given your upbringing in a Christian tradition or in this country. And I'm curious if anyone wants to share their relationship, their evolving relationship with this word or words that you prefer to use instead. Does anyone want to say anything about it? Can you use a microphone? And again, just a reminder that if you point it up, pull it up. And this is something I've thought about a fair bit that you're talking about that you do Christian faith, my impression is faith rests in the fundamental uh, validity, perhaps inherent validity of scriptures. I see the kind of faith I have as being a faith that from whatever little I may have seen surely what is being led to was being talked about is true, a faith not of scripture, but a faith of just knowing. Thank you. So 
maybe an inkling, a direct experience into a different kind of reality gives you faith in Dharma. Anybody else? Kosha? If you want, you don't have to. <laughs> I was going to say something similar, just I think there's a difference between blind faith, which for me has been someone told me something, and I, I wanted to hold on to that because it felt comforting that someone knew or thought they knew, um, and then experiential faith, like David was talking about, having a window into something that showed me a possibility or potential of where it could keep going and some, I guess, some gut intuition trust there about that being able to continue opening up. Trust. Good. Kensei, did you want to say something? Of course. <laughs> I think I'm probably echoing what they're saying, but it's important to me that it's, I can always affirm my faith. And that it's, that like it's always available, I can always check in, is this actually grounded in something? <clears throat> and the more, the more I do that, the more I come back to that, the more kind of that faith builds. And like I have that trust that, wow, that's always actually available to me to you know, see if that faith is like what that actually is all about. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kosho, for passing the microphone around. So usually practice doesn't immediately start with a leap of faith. We begin practice by taking interest in what we hear. We hear someone speak or we read a book about Dharma. In the model Dan Brown describes, which is known as the four notions that turn the mind to practice, we begin with interest. And from taking interest, admiration and respect arise for the teachings and the human beings that keep the teachings alive. At this stage of practice, we don't have much direct experience, perhaps an inkling, but really at some point we do have to take that leap and just hope that that inkling will lead to something more. So we often place our faith in a teacher, the living embodiment of the teachings on compassion and wisdom. This requires, as Dan Brown put it, a willingness to remain in darkness and a willingness to accept not knowing. And in order to see it through, we don't really know how this will turn out. We don't really know how long we will remain in darkness. And having faith is staying there despite the struggles that will um, almost definitely ensue. The cultivation of faith happens within a student-teacher relationship, and it also happens as we study the lives of powerful figures of our own lineage. The blood, sweat, and tears of those who came before us is what has kept the light of Dharma lit and able to be passed along to us, continuing onward in 2021 and hopefully beyond. In order to do this practice ourselves, we need to study the examples of our ancestors. Cultivating a faith that will help carry us along through the unavoidable struggles that came with a life of practice, that come with a life of practice. 
So I'd like to take a moment to talk about a very powerful figure in the Zen tradition, Hakuin Eikaku Zenji. I'm just beginning to learn about him, so I will share you with you the little that I do know. Hakuin is a towering figure in the history of Zen and is known predominantly as the revitalizer of the, Rinzai, of the Rinzai school, in particular after a period of deep stagnation and decline. His stature in history matches his physical stature in life. His disciple Tori Zenji describes Hakuin as having, quote, the heavy, deliberate motions of an ox and the penetrating glare of a ferocious tiger. But let's start at the beginning. Hakuin was born in 1686 in Hara, Japan. Hara and the surrounding countryside was dominated by the awesome sight of Mount Fuji, towering majestically and solidly above country villages and towns alike. Hakuin, which can be translated as hidden in whiteness, may very well be connected somehow to the great mountain Hakuin spent most of his life living below. Hakuin's mother's side of the family were devout Nichiren Buddhists. Hakuin was close to his mother and went with her to listen to sermons at local temples. It is said that at a young age, Hakuin became gripped with a fear of death and the eight hot hells, as described in the fierce sermons given by Nichiren preachers. And so begins his life of practice. He ordains at the age of 14 and spends much of the next nine years um, practicing near his home temple and also on pilgrimage, searching for an appropriate teacher. Giving up at one point to study art and calligraphy, his fear of death follows him. And it's um, chosen has a saying that everything we do, we may not quite realize it at the time, but everything we do gets turned back into usefulness for dharma. And so it's this great thing that he stopped practicing for a while to practice art and calligraphy because that came a, a monumental part of his offering to the world later in his life. <clears throat> his fear of death follows him. When his beloved mother dies in 1704, he was about 19 at the time, his grief was inconsolable, and he redoubles his efforts to practice true Zen. Hakuin says, unless students press forward with a spirit of fierce and dauntless inquiry, they will never break free from Mara's net of delusion. It will cling to their bones, stick to their hides until the last breath they draw. Another Hakuin quote we looked at during class the other night, which I will now paraphrase, went something like, Zazen in activity is a thousand million times better than Zazen in stillness. We can look at this in many different ways, given Hakuin's defiant rejection of how Zen was being popularly practiced during his lifetime. This is probably a commentary on what he called do-nothing Zen. This isn't necessarily saying we should be gardening rather than sitting in the zendo. 
Hakuin sat enormous amounts of zazen. In his early 30s, when he was back at his home temple, Soinji, he would have young boys strap him into a futon. So the futon would go around his body and they would tie straps around it so that he could sit upright through the night. And I'm not sure if he would, was able to release himself from the futon or if it was necessary that he wait for the young boys to return in the morning and then he would rise and take care of the daily needs. One way to look at this quote, Zazen in activity is a thousand million times better than Zazen in stillness, is asking how we are actively engaged with, this, with the Zazen we are sitting. He was a major proponent of koan study and really revived that tradition in Japan at the time. And koan study is really this um, their active engagement with Zazen. Hakuin's first major breakthrough came after a week of very determined sitting. He had been practicing uh, the Mukon for a year, up to a year, probably more than that, which is a good example for us that we shouldn't expect to receive a koan and answer it and move on the following week. I think maybe that's an American idea that's come about. Um, and, and really felt like he was coming up towards something as he was practicing this koan. Um, so he had gone to a temple to, in hopes of finding a teacher, was disappointed by what he saw there, and so hid himself in a shrine room at the back of the temple. On the final, the seventh night, his mind expanded open and he tasted awakening. His arrogance also expanded open. He describes himself as puffed with a soaring pride, bursting with arrogance and swallowing whole everyone he encountered, regarding them contemptuously as so many lumps of dirt. Which is an interesting what is awakening if that happens immediately after. <laughs> Like two arrows meeting in midair, Hakuin had this enlightenment experience and in, the wake, and in its wake appeared Shoju Rojin. Is that how you say it? Hakuin was 23 and he had finally found a teacher. He spent eight months with Shoju. He describes um, Soju as a very fierce older priest, and he describes being thrown off the platform like a small kitten, and that he lived there for those eight months with goosebumps on his, perpetually on his flesh. So that's a certain style of practice. It's unclear why he didn't stay longer, nor visit his beloved teacher in the remaining 13 years of Shoju's life. He described Soju as his one and only master. Another look at the quote, I will again paraphrase from class, Zazen in activity is a thousand million times better than Zazen in stillness. Even after his initial awakening experience, Hakuin laments, 
I feel like a physician who possesses a wonderful knowledge of medicine, but has no effective means of curing an actual sickness. How can I possibly hope to help rid other sentient beings of their afflictions as long as I still suffer from illness myself? I translated this somewhat as this feeling of sometimes we sit in the zendo and have these very opening and magical almost experiences and then we leave the zendo and interact with someone and it, there's a gap, there's a feeling of these are separate things. So zazen act in activity means that you leave the zendo and continue the practice. Hakuen became abbot of Shoinji Temple near his hometown of Hara at age 31. It was a crumbling temple. The wind swept through the rafters. It was cold. There wasn't much to eat. He lived very austerely and practiced rigorously with this question. I feel like a physician who possesses a wonderful knowledge of medicine but has no effective means of curing an actual sickness. How can I possibly hope to help rid other sentient beings of their afflictions as long as I still suffer from illness myself? He practiced rigorously with this question for many years. At age 41, he is said to have attained a final and great enlightenment. Norman Waddell, the translator of Wild Ivy, says, the accumulated doubts and uncertainty of 40 years suddenly cease to exist. Hakuin is quoted as saying, he found, I found teardrops, I found teardrops cascading down my face like strings of beads. They poured out like beans from a ruptured sack. And his teaching from this point forward poured forth like beans from a ruptured sack. Hakuin lived to be 83 and taught up until his death. He was a renowned Zen master and, and revered throughout Japan as an enlightened source of the true Buddhist teachings. From age 41 to 83, he taught and wrote and made art prolifically, all in the name of helping living beings to awaken. In his final years, his students would make vain attempts to slow him down, to ask him to rest, to, to ask him to preserve his strength. And he is quoted as saying, What's my, what is my fatigue compared with the great hunger my students suffer? So I hope this very brief introduction of one of our ancestors inspires faith in your own capacity for practice. It is always greater than we think it is. Hakuin started practice as a young child afraid of a fiery afterlife and transformed that fear through practice into becoming a Zen patriarch still studied and respected hundreds of years later. I hope this inspired faith in your own capacity and the faith of the human species. I said I would mention Earth Week, which is next week, starting tomorrow. 
It's Earth Week next week. Earth Day is Thursday. It's going to take great faith, great determination, and great activity to face the climate emergency of our times. We can face this together as Hakuin faced his fear of death by not turning away. And to close, I wanted to read This is a very fun book. It's the autobiography of Zen master Hakuin. He wrote a lot about his own life, which was, is not traditional in Zen to do, but he used those stories of his own life as teachings for his students. And of course, that's a, a huge reason why he's so well known today is he's just there's just piles and piles of his writing and artwork still available for us to study. So this is a brief story just about how Hakuin was in the day to day. He was of course not all strictness and severe severity, however, Glimpses of a less daunting, more human Hakuin can be seen in some of the supplementary notes Tori added to his biography, which contain anecdotes about his teacher's habits and foibles that enable us to gain a further picture of his overall personality. He was, for example, inordinately fond of sweets. This weakness must have been well known in circles, for Tori said that when he arrived at Soinji for his first meeting with the master, he took as a gift a bag of sugared goodies he had picked up along the way. Hakuin was also extremely fond of soba noodles, and when the temple cook began preparing them, um, Tororojiru? a dish made from pulverized mountain yam, we are told that, quote, the mere sound of the pestle grinding the yam was enough to make the master's mouth water and his eyes narrow with anticipation. Also, like most Japanese priests, he enjoyed drinking sake. The biography, which is a book written by Tori Zenji, tells of an incident in his mid-twenties when he stopped off to have a few last cups of sake before entering the temple to begin a rigorous practice season. According to the Zen historian Rikugawa Taun, Hakuin allowed no sake in the Soinji, in the Soinji during his first 10 years as head priest. Later on, however, he drank moderately, saying it was for medicinal purposes only. He also had a pipe habit dating back at least to his mid-twenties. At one point, troubled by the notion that his smoking might violate the Buddhist precepts, he decided to swear off. Taking out his tobacco pouch and kisuru pipe, he threw them into a rice paddy and then, as if to sever all remaining ties to the articles, poked them down with his staff until they were deeply buried in the mud. Again, he resumed the habit later on in life, this time saying it helped him to, quote, relax from the demands of his teaching duties. Torre, a priest who was known for his strict adherence to the precepts, writes how he would sometimes enter Hakuin's chambers and catch the master hastily concealing his still-smoking pipe behind his back.
Thank you for being here. We'll close with the four great bodhisattva vows.